Hi, Lacey. Hi, Georgia. <laughs> How are you doing? Oh, I'm great. <laughs> I don't know if I like this intro. We'll, we'll work on it. We're, well, we're, I love how, you know, people get down their intros and their outros. And we're I still liked, like, what has this been, like two years? We don't I have liked, a definitive one. I liked, and we're live. Yeah, but that, that, only, that stemmed from literally not knowing if we could make it live or not. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> our technology was so bad. True. Oh, gosh. Anyway, we'll get there. Who else, wait, which what other intro can we steal for this podcast? Who else has a uh, welcome back to the Half Cousins podcast? We're very much alive. <laughs> if you're new, you're welcome. Oh God, yeah. Uh, who, who else can we steal? We stole Hannah's. We'll steal Teresa's today. Uh, Hi, friends. I hope you're having an amazing day. <laughs> This might not be the most inappropriate <laughs> intro for what we're going to be talking about today. I apologize. Um, I'm try- having some fun before it gets dark. <sighs> I know we've been, uh, for, for a lot of people um, who aren't patrons, if you're just like watching us publicly online, it, it seems like we've been a little bit quiet for the podcast. Like We haven't really been doing so many um, live things. That's because we've been pre-recording because we've kind of changed up the way we do things now for the podcast, like for, mm-hmm. um, like we're on some, we're, we're on like Apple Podcasts and Spotify and Google Podcasts, we're, we're on like a whole bunch of places. I know, I, I know. Was listening to <laughs> us, I was listening to us on Apple Podcasts cooking dinner the other day and I was like, wow, so <laughs> we've made it, we're there, <laughs> we're everywhere. But uh, we didn't, we didn't want, obviously we kind of wanted to talk about what was going on currently right now and especially because I'm curious just to pick Lacey's brain because you went to school for criminal justice and that you have I a degree did. and also your partner he also didn't he doesn't he also have a criminal justice he also degree has a criminal justice degree I I feel like it's the weirdest thing about me like truthfully is that I have a criminal justice degree most people I tell that to they're like why so we could talk about that whole story my thoughts as someone, I wouldn't say I'm an expert on the criminal justice system, but I would say I have an above average understanding of how it works. You have a lot, you understand a lot more about it than other randos on Twitter yeah. talking about how we need to like do this and that. So. I would say so, yes. I also continue to get a degree in sociology and anthropology, which only kind of further hit home a lot of the things I learned in my criminal justice degree. So take that for what you will. I don't, again, I'm not an expert. I'm not a PhD. I haven't published anything on this, but I am very well versed in the criminal justice system, in American culture and society, that in the ways that it intersects with the criminal justice system, the ways that specifically um, gender and race all kind of intersect with the criminal justice system. Those are all things that are very much in my wheelhouse that I have written about, that I've done thesis on. If I was, and I do plan to go to grad school one day, these are all things that would bring with me to a um, a master's degree and possibly a PhD program. So take that for what you will. I'm not claiming to be an expert, but I am claiming to know more than the average bear. So <laughs> you know more than you, you know more than I do. I know more than probably your you know your uncle on Facebook sharing his opinion. So. <laughs> Uncle Randy! Yeah. (laughs) But that also being said, 
I don't currently work in the criminal justice system, but on purpose. So also take that for what you will. (sighs) Obviously right now with the death of the George Floyd and Mm -hmm. Breonna Taylor and so many countless others and with the protests going on in every single, every single state in Mm -hmm. the U S has had protests in major cities, even protests in other countries about consecutively for like over two weeks now have Mm -hmm. um, protesting police violence and the way that Mm -hmm. police exist in the U S and there's been a lot of talk about, defunding the police, abolishing the police, all police mm-hmm. are bad, like we need to get rid of the entire institution. And I think a lot of misconceptions about what all those things mean. Yes. Mm-hmm. So should we just start with like my journey, how I got into this? Yeah, let's let's start there and then we can uh, okay. go macro after that. I think that's a good idea. So I started college wanting to be some sort of a therapist. I wanted to do either like sex and gender kind of work or because that was a very new and emerging field. I feel like when I was starting college, this is 10 years ago at this point, I'm 28. So that was would have been when I was 18. Or I also was very much teetering with the idea of being an art therapist, which is why my two year liberal arts degree, I focused very much on art history. So I have a weird knowledge of art and art history which is a weird fact about me but anyway because I teetered with the idea of becoming an art therapist and then and then I met Matt so we've talked about the way that our our partners we've talked about my story meeting Matt Matt is my husband and we've been together 10 years so actually around the start of the story as well also in college he was in college as a criminal justice major Matt had wanted to be a cop since he was like a child it was his lifelong goal to be a cop. That's what he loved. That's what he was going to school for. So I went to my, I went through two years of community college, wanting to be a therapist, taking a lot of psychology classes, transitioned into a four-year college. Matt and I went to the same four-year college together as commuters. And I think it might've been my very first semester at my four-year school or the second semester. It might've been the first or the second. I think it was the second now that I'm thinking about it. Him and I took an elective together that was a criminal justice themed elective, basically to kind of make him happy, but I was also very much interested in it. So to fill a requirement for me, I took intro to criminal justice just to kind of understand Matt better, I guess, in a sense, understand because he liked it so much. And then together, we took a class called Sex, Crimes, and the Criminal Justice System. So that was a class, and I think at the same time as well, I was taking a a social work class called Race, Ethnicity, and Diversity. So that was all kind of happening at the same time, and that is very much what led to what happened next. So I took two of those things kind of because I wanted to. I took the sex crimes class, it's sex comma crimes, not sex crimes class, with Matt as an elective together, so that one we had together. And that changed my world that opened me up to information I had never experienced in my life before, because not only was I getting this very fundamental rudimentary information of what the criminal justice system is, how it works, because everyone, I think when you think of the criminal justice system, you just think of like cops, judges, jails, you don't understand what makes up integrally like what is the criminal justice system all the moving pieces and how 
it affects people. And then those other classes beyond just intro. So taking race, ethnicity, and diversity, taking this other elective class where the focus of that class was how um, your gender, your sexuality, and your race intersect with the criminal justice system. That was the focus of the elective that Matt and I took together. That was such a powerful experience to me because I had never in my life really understood intersectionality between all of those things before. I had never understood intersectionality as a concept before. I had never understood the ways that the criminal justice system affects every aspect of our society, including everybody listening right now, including us, it affects everything. And I had never really understood the injustices and the inequality that people face in their experiences through the criminal justice system, because you're, you're, you grow up and you are taught, uh, the government has its best interests out for its citizens. We might disagree on things, but they're there for the people. Cops are there to protect you. Bad guys go to jail. It has to be this way because what else could you do but take bad guys off the streets, blah, blah, blah. And it was the first time in my life that those things were challenged. And it was also the first time in my life where I, I truly understood that things like racism, sexism, classism are not just things that happened in the 60s, but they're over now. They're very much alive and they're very much in our in every facet of our society, built into every facet of our society. That's what we mean when we say that these issues are systematic or systemic based on how you're looking at it. So that semester, I signed the papers to become a criminal justice major. My parents were so not happy about it because most people's intention of getting a criminal justice degree is to become a cop. And I never wanted to become a cop. I wanted to become a victim's advocate. So what that means is the criminal justice system in America is designed to protect the accused. Every step of the criminal justice system in theory is created, is designed to protect the accused. So if you're accused of a crime, you should expect in theory to be treated fairly, to be put in, uh, in front of a jury of your peers to have evidence presented against you to get the fairest experience possible to have representation in theory. I'm going to say one more time, blah, blah, blah. There is nothing built into our criminal justice system to ever protect victims. And around this time, personally, I was kind of coming to terms with situations where I had been victimized in my past. So it was kind of a perfect storm of like everything accumulating into one focus of my life where I was going to be a victim's advocate and a victim's advocate is somebody who helps a victim navigate all of the aspects of the criminal justice system. They help them go through the court system. They help them understand the ways to protect themselves against the accused, all of the things that happen after the fact, blah, blah, blah. It's someone who helps guide someone through the court system, basically as they go through the process of bringing their, um, their, what is it called? Their, Case. abuser their abuser oh. to justice basically in in theory <laughs> and i was so about it and i loved it so much i was fortunate enough to have fan fucking tastic professors professors who were just experts in their fields who came from all different subsects of the criminal justice system like the person who taught that elective that matt and i took together initially She's the professor that when I reference her work helped overturn conversion therapy in New Jersey. She's the one who taught that class. Her A conversion therapy. Yeah. So she was the one that um she did all this research about 
LGBTQ teens and her she used her data to testify in the state of New Jersey basically to help outlaw gay conversion therapy. So she was a really interesting, fantastic woman. And also I took a terrorism class that totally changed my life with someone who worked with the FBI to database um, global terrorist groups. And she did something so powerful in her class where she had all of us pick a terrorist organization. And then you had to do a huge paper, a huge project on the origins of that terrorist group. But there were so many groups where you realize that the core of their present, like the, the reason that they existed was for, because of some kind of just terrible social injustice or global injustice or political injustice. Like for instance, I did an, an Armenian group and that was the first time that I had really learned about the Armenian genocide, which was unfortunately college. So take that for what you will. So that was a really powerful class. I took, I, one of the main professors of my college, he ran, he was a police chief. He also ran a jail. He currently worked with the FBI during that time. Really smart guy. He helped bring community policing to a lot of New Jersey police departments, which I'll talk about probably when we get into modern policing. He, fantastic. And I feel like I graduated with like 200 people. And I'm sure that every single person I graduated with was probably touched by at least one of these professors because it really, it couldn't have been a better group of professors in my opinion. I'm sure that every single person I graduated with left thinking that they could change the criminal justice system from the inside out. I'm sure of it. And I would say the majority of who I graduated with were people who wanted to be, to be police officers. I would say like 90% who wanted to be some type of officer, whether it was a police officer, a corrections officer, probation, parole. In the state of New Jersey, I believe all of those, but parole are state um, state Places. cops, basically. They're, so in other states, you don't have to be a police officer to be a corrections officer or even a probation officer. In New Jersey, you do have to. You have to take the civil service test, I think, to be all of those things. Parole, I don't think so, but I have to double check that. So most people I graduated with wanted to be some sort of an officer. Uh, I would say right after that, there was a small percentage of people who wanted to be lawyers. And then I kind of just was this anomaly that wanted to be a victim's advocate and was most likely going to get a master's in social work, which is what I still plan to do. So that was always my plan, even though along the way, there have been all of these like side sweeps of like wanting to do other things and panicking and studying other things. I think a lot of that might have just been not being able to handle my anxiety. And I'm kind of now as I get things under control, reverting back to my plan A, because I still think it's the best plan for me. But that's another podcast. But anyway, so I was, I don't think I can even think of anybody else I graduated with who wanted to be some kind of victims, anything like me, I think most people wanted to be cops. And it was a lot of people who were former military who wanted to be cops, a lot of people who's fathers were cops, uncles were cops, grandfathers were cops, etc., or had been um, class two or class three officers. Or I forget the, actually, I should say, I don't remember what class is which in New Jersey. So there's three classes of officers in New Jersey. One, I think, I think it's class one officers are the whole shebang badge gun, what you think of when you think of calling 911. And then it kind of trickles down to like, you're on a bike and you have a baton and handcuffs. Like there's not much going on. So because I'm in a shore area, there were a lot of people that were whatever class that was where maybe they had spent summers being like B list officers in shore towns, basically. So a lot of stuff like that. 
But by the time I left, I was so disenfranchised with the criminal justice system. I was so disgusted with it. I was so hate I loved everything I learned, but I hated what it was. And I really had been become clear to me that there was no universe where you could change things from the inside. It was never gonna happen. And that's what kind of caused my personal internal dilemma where I quickly rematriculated and got a sociology and anthropology degree, started studying biological anthropology just to see if I liked it or not. And I did love it. I studied geology. So I have those two sides of me because I do love physical science a lot. But I think most people who hear me speak know that my passion is this. My passion is social science. My passion is everything I'm speaking about right now. So those are things that I'm coming to terms with now as a 28-year-old who's been out of college for a few years. But anyway, but I think I'm the minority in in understanding deeply that you can't change the system from the inside. I think most people think, and I think in a perfect world, if I could know in my heart that every future cop got the education that I got and had the professors that I had and was mandated to take the classes that I was mandated to take, that may, that maybe, yeah, in theory, you could change everything from the inside. In theory, the you could have good cops that that would call, that would call out things like the blue curtain and would address uh, systemic racism and would switch to community policing types of police behaviors and everything would be great. But the the truth of the matter is, I was in a very unique situation. And out of 200 people that I graduated with, I imagine only a fraction of that actually went out to become cops. How many of those people were touched as deeply as I was by the classes they took? I don't know, because I also graduated with a lot of people who wore magma hats and didn't really care what they were learning about because their dads were cops and they were going to become cops no matter what. And classes where I'm screaming at people because there was some frat dude in the back of the class talking about guys being falsely accused of sexual assault and I'm screaming and in tears yelling at this person that guy is probably going to go become a cop and it really just I left so fucked up <laughs> I don't regret it for a second I love the education I got I would not be the person I was without this education but it messed me up. And I think it's taken me a long time to kind of come to terms with what is it that I can do as somebody who does want change? What do I do now? Because it seems like any of the things that I would want to do, even if I continue to get a social work, a master's in social work, like I'm thinking that I might do, what does that continue to do but push a system that's already broken to begin with? I know Hannah, Smokey Glow Hannah has talked about come to terms with this in her world because she's getting a master's in social work. You want to change things. You're going into it for the right reasons. Your heart's in the right place. But there's this part of you that always knows that if you continue to do this work, you're only ever going to be a cog in a system that's already broken. And so that's been interesting for me to kind of deal with. And I think that's why I, I ended up uh, focusing in physical anthropology for my second degree, because there was a part of me that was like, well, I'm going to go overseas and I'm going to study genocide and war crimes. And that actually does make a difference. And I don't, I don't know if that would either. So I think a lot of my problem has always been, I know the system's broken. I know everything is so broken, but what do I do now? That I'm still kind of unclear on. And I think that that's kind of where we get into right now. 
what's happening with the Black Lives Matter movement, what's happening with all of these police things. That's kind of where I am now. Yes, Georgia. <laughs> what's the blue curtain? Mm. So that, okay. So <laughs> when I, every, I think most people, when they have a degree, they have some kind of project at the end. They have some kind of thesis that they work towards, towards the end. I had a senior thesis. I took um, my senior, I think they were called capstones. My capstone for criminal justice was called uh, policies and procedure. And it was taught by the professor who I just mentioned, who was a chief of police who ran a jail, who really was a like advocate for community policing. He was a cool dude. Um, my thesis that I worked on that basically used everything that I had learned in my criminal justice degree that I spent a whole year doing research for, writing, editing, educating myself on to the point where I feel very confident in my knowledge about this subject. If I was, I could probably take this thesis to grad school if I wanted to because I've done the research to back it up. Was about the fact, I believe my, my thesis was that Community policing will never be effective as long as there is a blue curtain. So what the blue curtain is, is it's this kind of unofficial name given to the camaraderie that police officers have for each other and what police officers are willing to do to protect each other and maintain their culture within policing. So it's this idea of policing being such a serious job, being such a dangerous job, being such a violent job, being so stressful that nobody else could ever understand what it's like besides other police officers. So that's why historically police will protect themselves first before other people. It's why people who speak out against police from within police agencies tend to get fired or silenced or removed. It's also the reason why even in situations where you can have a diverse police system, which we don't typically have, though, so part of my research that I found to support my thesis was that interviewing minority police officers so that we've all we all know how intersectionality works the standard in america tends to be male straight cisgendered and white so if you deter from that in any way if you're a black police officer if you're a female police officer if you're a gay police officer etc cetera, etc cetera, you tend to give up that aspect of your identity and relate more to other white straight male officers before you ever relate to those other parts of you basically so there, there are situations where i was there were interviews with asian police officers with lesbian police officers where it felt like they were in situations where their demographic that they were a part of that they identified with were being targeted were being made fun of were being persecuted unfairly by the police where they were directly like locker room style in their barracks being made fun of or having their demographics made fun of. And they felt like they had to kind of turn that off and ignore it and identify with the majority in order to effectively do their job. And that is a huge reason why for my personal thesis, I felt that community policing currently in America can never be effective. That and the fact that we don't have a diverse police force to begin with. And most police officers don't even live in the areas that they police. So that's what the blue curtain is. It's kind of like that unspoken solidarity that police officers have to protect each other. It's why when domestic abuse charges against officers, for example, are brought up, typically nothing ever comes for them because other officers will brush under the rug. That's just an example, but it's lots of things like that. And we see this currently, like for instance, the incident in Buffalo 
where the old man was pushed and it was incredibly graphic. And then when the officer who was, or the two officers that were responsible were put on like leave, everybody else quit. That would be an example of the blue curtain. It's this like weird solidarity of police officers first and then fuck everybody else second. Cause you could never understand what being a police officer was like. That's interesting. Yeah. I, I, thought, I think it's interesting. The fact that you brought up that, um, Basically, anyone who is part of a marginalized community, they have to give up that aspect of themselves in order yes. to. Fit that's in. just yeah. That's basically that's just what my re- my personal research that I found showed. But yeah, through interviews, because that's kind of a, a hard thing to quantify. But I think it was mostly through personal interviews. A lot of police officers who belonged to minority groups felt like they kind of had to ignore that they were a minority, and just do what they were told essentially. <laughs> Excuse me, I'm going to slurp real quick. <laughs> so I think people who have a, like a surface level understanding mm-hmm. of like the police in their country, like, let's just use the U.S., they might be thinking like, we need police because mm-hmm. there's bad people out there and who's mm-hmm. going to protect us, who's going to solve our crimes. Mm-hmm. Um, if we don't have the police, like it's just going to be like, uh, you know, an inescapable hellhole, and it'll be like yeah. crazy. The, yeah, people think basically think it'll be the purge. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I've noticed. But what I've noticed about police, and what I, whenever I look into it, I think there's the idea of what they are, and then mm-hmm. what they actually do are very different things. Yes, a hundred percent. So this is this is where things get really complicated. The fact of the matter is. The police currently target a lot of demographics of people that could benefit from being dealt with by anybody else but police officers. And their current every a lot of our problems now are the result of a few things. So a lot of current problems in policing are systemic from one slavery. Two, I would say the the next big thing would be like the war on drugs that kind of happened in the eighties, and then currently. The most recent thing that's impacted modern policing is the 94 crime bill that was signed by Bill Clinton. And also Joe Biden had a huge part in that. But anyway, a lot of the things that are currently wrong with policing are systemic of those big three events, in my personal opinion. And in general, I'm going to sound like a broken record. A lot of the things that police are coming to the aid of or trying to fix in our society are systemic of capitalism. And things that would be fixed if we had more investment in other areas of our society and other areas in general of just 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 putting money anyplace else, basically. Investing in education, investing in housing, investing in healthcare, investing in so many other things. Because that was the other thing I've noticed was, for instance... There's all, there's all these ideas of how can policing be better, and it all kind of, from my experience being in college, a lot of those ideas are things that would be better treated by putting money in other places. For instance, I, Matt was in the same capstone as me, and his thesis was something about um, police intervention in youth, to, and the whole idea being if you can get police to community police basically with youth and i can explain what community policing is better in a second if but if if during if while using 
an aspect of community policing that specifically focuses on interacting with youth that will in turn prevent youth from growing up to be criminals. But arguably, how about we just invest in housing and making sure that kids get fed and have access to education and safety and uh, like th like things that could literally be treated by investing in social programs, investing in, I know I keep saying education, but so much money is ripped from school systems, it's unreal. Investing in just people being able to get out of poverty. So inventing in mental health, that's a big one. There's a lot of people involved in our mental in our criminal justice system because they're mentally ill, because we don't have universal health care and we don't have access to mental health care in this country. And there's a huge population of people who are in jails and prisons currently simply because they're mentally ill. So so I would so if I was going to debate Matt's thesis, bro. I would debate why am I wasting time paying cops to play basketball with teens, which is something that Bill Clinton was a proponent of. Why am I not making sure that their schools are safe and that their teachers are well stocked with their supplies and that they have access to resources that keep them fed and that build community? But that that's where we get into the problem. Um, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I've heard that in the U.S., the origins of police, and keep in mind, we're like a young country. We're like, what, 200 and some years old? We're not even 300 years old yet as a country. That's pretty young as far as country standards go. Mm -hmm. Wasn't it that the origins of the police in the Completely U.S.? How old America is? <laughs> it was a mixture of slave catchers. So if, if slaves ever ran away or if even if like slaves were like, causing a problem on a plantation or whatever it would be like the people who were in charge of slaves and mm -hmm. then also in cities it was gangs and militias that were contracted through like the mayor or whoever was in charge of the city whatever as like protection forces like so you like we know when you see in like movies or whatever and it's like a mafia goes to like a corner store and it's like you need to give us protection money otherwise like mm -hmm. we're gonna like loot the store or like burn down the store or whatever yeah that's what i've heard was like the origin like way way back early on that's like what the yeah. place was am i so am, am yeah, i wrong so, so um from what i was taught the original police officers were slave patrol basically they were to catch runaway slaves to make sure that slaves were working they weren't trying to leave things like that and there was also like you said an aspect of kind of like militias i also know a lot of that existed within like the west as well where there was kind of like the lawless west when you think of american history and these kind of militias that had to form in order to bring peace and order and blah 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 so it's kind of, it's kind of like you said it was a mix of all of that but i think predominantly what we know as policing now stemmed from slavery and you can see that in our police badges and you can just google the history of the police badge and it'll come right up but yeah so fun stuff <laughs> so matt got the same degree as you and you said he wanted yes, he, he wanted him to become a cop but he's not i a didn't cop. want him to become a cop he or wanted to become <laughs> not that, not you he wanted to become a cop yeah so his life goal his his whole life was to become a cop since he was like 13 I want to say like 11 or 13 or something and <laughs> he, I have his permission to tell his story to tell his tale he was almost a New Jersey State cop twice and he was almost a Philly cop he was hired by like three different departments and none of it worked out 
And to this day, I'm not a big religious person, but I feel like that was some kind of higher power or universe intervening or something because it just seems crazy to me that all three of those instances did not work out. And Matt is was very much a believer of the good cop and I could be the person who changes it from the inside and I could be this, that, and the other thing. And I, I always, from day one, kind of opposed it. One, my, well, originally before I knew what I knew, I didn't want Matt to become a cop because I just thought it would be dangerous and I didn't want anything to happen to him. But then the more educated I got, I didn't want him to become a cop because I didn't want him to maintain a racist system. And when I, when we were getting our degrees, it was very much when the first wave of Blue Lives Matter, black, yeah, the first wave of Black Lives Matter slash counterpoint blue eyes matter the first wave of really like cell phones capturing police brutality and police murder and like that really it was when we were first being exposed to that as a culture i feel like it's not the first time police murdered but it's the first time we were seeing it on camera that was all happening around the time we were getting our degrees and it was very hard for me to stomach the idea of staying with someone long term who would feel comfortable maintaining those systems and participating in those systems and there was no convincing me then and there's no convincing me now that you could ever change things from the inside as the single good cop and blah blah blah. and i was very convinced that if matt became a cop he would just go full douchebag it would corrupt his soul it would corrupt him as a person because matt already kind of has douchebag tendencies and I just, I knew we would break up because cops have like an 80% divorce rate anyway. I knew that it was just inevitable. And he took the civil service test. So in New Jersey, to become a cop, you have to take the civil service test, which is like a sit down standardized test. And I absolutely forget what's on it. And you're ranked so many points. And then based on your score, it's sent off to all hiring police departments everywhere, basically. And they'll call you based on the order of which you score. If you served in the military, you automatically start with so many more points and so many more whatever. I think Matt got like an 80. But let's say if Matt was a veteran and he had that 80, he would have like 100, which means he would get first dibs on any cop job in the state of New Jersey. So he was... He, he was called by a couple of police departments in New Jersey. He also uh, went through the process to do corrections. That is interesting. And he also was hired by the Philly Police Department, which talk about, I think, the universe intervening because Philly police are like notoriously Nazis. They're the ones where when you see cops with Nazi tattoos in uniform, it's typically a Philly cop. So... <laughs> I think every day that it was the universe in because what Matt does now probably helps a lot more people than if he ever was to become a cop. So <laughs> him, him not becoming a cop was just, was it just these places he didn't want to, like you didn't want to move to Philly or like they just didn't end up hiring him? So for Philly, he also Matt very much like, and this is a character flaw to Matt, and he will recognize this now as his in his maturity as almost a 30-year-old. But I think 
Matt's assumption was that it was going to be easy. Matt's assumption was he was going to get a criminal justice degree. He was going to get hired by something. It was just going to fall into place. It wasn't going to be complicated at all. The problem is it's a very competitive field to get into. There's no shortage of people trying to be cops. There's no shortage of former um, army people or uh, children of cops, veterans. There's no shortage of children of cops trying to be cops there's so many people trying to be cops i 200 is an accurate number for how many people i graduated with (laughs) and so i think matt thought it was going to be easy i think he thought i'll graduate i'll get in it'll be no problem so he also put probably way less effort into it than he should have if he truly wanted to become a cop So, for instance, when he got hired by Philly, you have to complete all these physical fitness assessments. And he was working out every day and doing his thing, blah, 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 gym dude. And he didn't meet one of the runs by, like, seconds. And then he never went through the process of retaking it for some reason, even though it was offered to him. And I'm still kind of foggy as to why, actually, in retrospect. Like, he could have retaken it, and he never did. Um, with corrections, I don't even remember what happened with the corrections. He got hired by corrections, went and took a test. I think he might have failed a, one of the tests. Again, never really followed back up on it. Delaware was interested in him, but he never really, I never really went through the process with Delaware. So it was just all these kind of almost things that he never followed through on. And I don't even really know why, to be perfectly honest. I don't know if it was laziness. I don't know. None of it ended up working out, which I think is a good thing. I think there was a lot of also, I think he was pretty discouraged because Philly was so close that it didn't end up happening. So I think that discouraged him a lot. He also, because he never was like a beach cop for lack of a better word and like did anything kind of to prepare himself. He was at a disadvantage because a lot of people had done something to kind of set them out, set them up for it first. He had, he you know, wasn't a veteran, things like that. So I think he just got discouraged and then convinced himself along the way that he could never do it. And then he basically has aged out of it and then fell into what he's doing now. And he really likes what he does now, which is really weird. For anyone who doesn't know, Matt now um, works in nonprofit and he takes care of adults with disabilities for a living. So dramatically different. And he absolutely loves what he does, which is crazy to me. <laughs> He would have been doing the exact opposite in a lot of ways. Yeah, seriously. I think about that all the time. <laughs> Do you... I know you've mentioned that he's he's also come to terms with, like, with everything going on right now in our current climate. He's finally realized that, like, it was, like, a good thing he never became a cop. Is that what, yeah. you, isn't that what you said to me? Yeah. it. He really, for the longest time, held on to the whole... I would have been a good cop and really had like this regret in his life that he never became a cop. And only recently has he really talked about like, I was never going to make a difference. There was never going to be a situation where I was a good cop, quote unquote. It it never, I would have just, like I mentioned earlier, been a cog in the system, basically. Like truly. Why is there no good cops? Or why can't you be the good cop that changes the police force? Other than I know we talked about the blue curtain, but. So in my opinion, as someone who studied this, it would, it's trying to, it's, it's just, it's trying to fit 
a, a square peg in a round hole. Like that's the only thing I can, that's the only way I can phrase it. There, the system was never designed to be good to begin with. The, the way policing works, the way that these laws work, the way that something like the 94 crime bill still has a lasting effect, a generational lasting effect to this day. It was designed in inequality to begin with. It was designed to uphold and protect certain parts of society, not others. Every aspect of it is broken. So it doesn't matter if you funnel in a couple good pieces. It's never going to change anything. You would have to dismantle the system entirely and, and build it from scratch. That's what you learn getting a criminal justice degree. That's what Matt and I both fundamentally believe that's what, when you talk about things like defunding or abolishing the police, that's what we're talking about is you can't save what's already broken. It's like trying to fix up a totaled car. You can, you have to just rebuild it. It's too broken. Or another analogy would be like, if I have a factory and I'm, I'm going to stick with cars for a second and I produce cars in my factory and 95 of my 95% of my cars will probably kill you and are probably fucked up and won't help you in a crash and the seatbelts lock and everything's terrible. If by chance, like a few slip out every once in a while that don't have a defect and are fine, does that change the fact that my, my factory to begin with is funneling out fucked up cars? No, it doesn't matter if there's one here, one there. And that's what Matt believed for so long is that when you saw the videos of men being literally slaughtered in fucking snuff films rotating around the internet because of their skin color. That was a bad apple. But then you start to realize, no, that's everything because it's built into every facet of policing to begin with, to the fact that police don't even live in the own, their cities that they, you know, patrol to the styles of policing that exist to things like broken windows policies, the fact that judge discretion has been dismantled by the 94 police bill to the fact like everything. It's just the blue curtain, f the way that some police positions are political and you have to be elected into them. Like so much of it is just bullshit. It's just absolute bullshit. And that also goes down to the laws styles of policing, government, everything. Because what, what you learn in, what I learned in my policies class is that there's all these fucked up laws that happened. There's all these fucked up things that are just ingrained in our system, like three strike laws, uh, mandatory, mandatory minimums. minimums. Yeah, that are so fucked up that statistics prove don't work. That statistics prove ruin communities, ruin families, have generational effects, just dis disproportionately affect people of color. But they don't change because when when, pol when politicians try to change them, you're seen as soft on crime and you don't get elected again. So these things just continue forever because the system is fundamentally broken. And the fact, and Jasmine brings up the for-profit system as well of prisons is another thing. It's just fundamentally fucked. So if Matt was to be a corrections officer, it would be in a system that's for-profit, that does not prioritize 
reform or any way that has an 80% recidivism rate. It wouldn't fucking matter because we take funding out of prisms that have things like skill classes and college classes and things like that. We take the money out of them anyway. We funnel people into private prisons. It doesn't fucking matter. What A police system that is designed to protect officers and that policing itself to become a police officer is wild to me. The, how every state differs, how some states you might have to take a civil service test and other states you just take six weeks of classes and you're good. That not every police station universally knows uh, de-escalation methods or has universally the same less than lethal uh, weapons or like things like that. Like It's wild to me that some, in New Jersey you have to be a state cop to be a corrections officer, but in another state you can just be a rent-a-cop. And that's who could be who's patrolling your prisons. It's crazy to me. It's so broken. Every aspect of it is broken. That's why I'm sorry, even if you have a cop father who his heart's in it for the right reasons, your uncle's a cop, your brother's a cop, your step, your, your in-law, whoever, and they're not racist and they don't go to work trying to be racist. The system that they work in in itself is a racist system because the law is designed to keep it racist. The laws are designed to make it so that police are maintaining racist systems. Even as far as laws go, police don't know the laws. They just know what's against the law. They're not taking court classes. They're not taking, you know, they're not lawyers. They're, they're just told what is wrong and what to look for and what to target and what to make money off of. Isn't there just also quotas for giving people speeding yes, tickets and parking that's tickets? that's very real. Yeah, there's a money aspect to it, too. A hundred percent. So, and then there's things like um, the broken wind, like broken windows policing, where you're targeting visual aesthetic crimes because the theory is if it looks like nobody is committing crimes in that area, then people will stop committing crimes. So that's what heavily targets petty crimes like hand-to-hand -hand drug transactions, uh, graffiti, vandalism petty crimes and it's what locks people up forever because of mandatory three strike laws is bullshit i can't i can't i can't even be confined within an hour podcast a two-hour podcast to be to, to scream at how bullshit it is and i would it just it sucks because then you feel hopeless and i get why everyone is so fucking done that we're taking to the streets because it was never fundamentally designed to benefit people to begin with. There aren't punishments for cops who become um, judge, jury, executioner in their, their patrols. There's no punishment for that. There's no universal standard for what to do when a cop does exhibit excess force. That's the problem. Could you imagine if every McDonald's in the world just did whatever the fuck it wanted? Every McDonald's in the United States just did what the fuck it wanted and you couldn't guarantee when you walked into a when you walked into each one, if they're going to be clean, if their staff's going to be polite, if the food's even going to be the same, that's what policing is in America. It's all up to interpretation for the area. That's bananas to me. Tropic Cat Life has a question about mm -hmm. um, how you feel about police and criminal procedural shows on TV and entertainment and how do you think they affect the popular opinion of the police system? I definitely think it encourages a racist narrative. Have you ever watched Cops? It's mostly people of color. Like, let's be real. It And it it trivializes a lot of the reasons why people would be interacting with the police to begin with. So it trivializes things like um, drug use. It trivializes things like mental illness. It tri like, it trivializes things like poverty. 
Like, does no one think that these, like, crimes that people are getting arrested for on cops aren't systemic of greater societal issues, of greater societal downfalls? Sure, like, we're failing. We're failing these people. Every person who gets arrested and mocked at on cops, that's a person that the United States government has failed, in my opinion, that their community has failed. But we're laughing at that, and it's creating morale for cops. How entertaining is it? It's normalizing a culture where black and brown people can be arrested and nobody bats an eye at it. Nobody questions it because it's just part of our society. They just canceled cops. As they should have. After 31 seasons. In my opinion, I know the concept of copaganda is big right now. I genuinely believe in that. I believe there is a narrative that's pushed from children and onwards that cops are the good guys. And if you... If something's wrong, just find a cop, find a police officer. That's also a very privileged thing that I learned as a white person. I was taught, you know, if you have some, if something's wrong, call the cops. They'll help you. Do you, uh, you, like, whenever we think of, I know you're just mainly focused on cops, which is like yeah. a reality TV show, but yeah. scripted scripted TV shows, too. That, too. A hundred percent, yeah. I think Maggie Mae Fish was tweeting that. She'll never take a cop role when they've been offered to her, acting-wise, because it helps to push this narrative of the good cop. It helps to push this narrative that when you see people like George Floyd being murdered, that's just a bad apple. That that's not the reality. That the reality is these good cops that we see on TV. The reality is, you know, I 100% believe in copaganda. I know I've also, I've seen uh, video essays on YouTube about, um, like uh, like the Dirty Harry movies mm-hmm. and the progression of um, all the different movies and what he did. And it, it's always the narrative of like, there's this cop who just doesn't play by the rules and mm-hmm. he's just trying to like get stuff done, but the yeah. government is like holding him back. And then yeah. that's why he's so reckless and crazy. And he's a, he's mm-hmm. a loose, loose cannon cop. How many times have you heard oh, yeah. that phrase? Mm-hmm. And it, that normalized, and I know you could be like, it's just a TV show, it's not that deep. But there are endless examples of police shows. There are endless examples of police movies. One of my favorite shows in the whole world is Bones. That's arguably just another cop show. Like, <laughs> like there's the whole science aspect of it, but it's a cop show at the end of the day. Like, uh, Olivia's saying I rewatched SVU last year. Some of the shit Elliot pulls falls under excessive force, and he's supposed to be the good guy. Exactly. It normalizes this idea of justice at all cops. And also... Way back in the beginning of this podcast, I was saying that in theory, the criminal justice system is supposed to be fair and you're supposed to be innocent before proven guilty, blah, blah, blah. There's also this narrative push of like, well, the truth will always come out. And if you're innocent, it'll come out. And it's just a means to finding the bad guy. That's not always how it works in this country. Unfortunately, there are plenty of situations where people are guilty before they're innocent, truthfully, in this in this scenario. It's unfortunate. And it's systemic, and that is why, again, to reiterate, there just truly can't be good cops right now when the whole system in itself is fucked to begin with and is designed to be racist to begin with. The thing that I find the most disturbing whenever we hear about people being killed by police is the excuses and the yes. well he must have deserved it well he was a criminal or like uh he was no he was no angel that's the thing that people always say yeah. is like he has a past he was doing all this and i i am deeply concerned if you think being um alleged of having a counterfeit 20 dollar bill deserve makes it so that you deserve to die 
Yeah, that was something that was like a common theme to talk about in a lot of my classes when I got my degree was like, like all these men, black men being murdered by police. And it would like come out later that they, something in their past, whatever. And something that we were, I was learning my procedures class was like, who gives a shit? Like that doesn't mean anything. Like it's not a cop's job to be judge, jury, executioner, but that's what was happening. That's unfortunately what happens very often in this in the society. And there's this narrative of, oh, if they just would have complied, that if they just would have complied, it wouldn't have happened. And that's something that a lot of police officers believe is that you have to do everything I say, you have to comply or else I have the right by any means necessary to take you down. Again, because there's very limited, if any legislation that depicts that that outlines the procedures that a cop is supposed to take before taking lethal force. You think that would be something we all universally focused on, but again, that even differs for police stations. So I don't I, know. I am. Um, I've done stuff that's illegal in my life. Who I know. hasn't? No, but <laughs> I know. I remember, I've t I'm pretty sure I've told this story before, how when I was a teenager, mm -hmm. I was basically driving a car that I took without permission, which is a nice way of saying stolen, mm -hmm. and I didn't have a license. And I even got pulled over by the police when this happened, and they let me go home. And I just... I couldn't imagine anyone justifying, like, my murder in that case of, like... Well, mm -hmm. we were threatened by her, so we had to shoot her, this yeah. teenage girl. Could you imagine, like, if people said that about me? But people mm -hmm. will say it all the time about yes. Black people. Especially, 100%. like, um, I was a teenager at the time when this happened, but um, if anyone's ever heard of Tamir Rice, he was playing with, like, a toy gun. He was, and, he was Yeah, like an airsoft gun, I think. He was, he was a child. A and, child. And he was shot because police were like, oh, he, we thought he, like, was going to pull out a weapon on us. Mm-hmm. And then there's also this idea of, of weren't the police saying, well, we thought he was older. Mm -hmm, that or he, too. he was an that, adult. Yeah, that's something that, so <laughs> my elective that I took with Matt that changed my life forever. That was something we learned about was like this myth of the black male offender or the black male criminal that's kind of always been pushed in our society. And that it's not even, it's beyond the criminal justice system. There's this kind of, there's a trope in film that's like, um, like the spiritual black person or the magic black person where it's like, that's a whole thing. I'm not really a film person, but that's something you can look into where it's always this, this, this narrative that's pushed in American society that black people are more violent, are bigger, more aggressive, are more dangerous, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that is something that carries through the criminal justice system is you'll have cops that use deadly force, but then they'll say things like, oh, well, I could see in his eyes that he was going to kill me or like, he was just, he felt like five men or something crazy like that. That's a narrative that ca that carries through to this day that stems from like slavery mm -hmm. that we still systemically face to this day. Hmm. Oh. We didn't even touch on prisons. I probably won't touch on prisons, but Jesus Christ. <laughs> we, can always, we can always do a part two to this if yeah. people want us to in the future. Do you want to... Mm -hmm. Um, do you know what you know what 1350 is, right? Or what, what it means when people yeah. say that? Yeah. So 1350, it's like it's it's like a it's like a dog whistle if like you're cons like conservative or like not 
well-intentioned it basically means that like well black people are just naturally dangerous because while they're 13 percent of the population they commit like 50 percent of violent crime mm -hmm. and i know you might know more about this than i do but yeah. isn't it just that uh black communities are policed more so that exactly. is why there, there's such a higher rate of percentages when it comes to crimes yeah, statistically, black people and white people commit the same amount of crimes, but black communities are placed higher. And I think that goes towards the war on drugs, personally, and also the 94 crime bill and broken window policing, which are all things that I've referenced that I encourage you looking into if, this, if these subject matters fascinate you in any way. Look into any of those three things, basically. But yeah, so... This is where also when I go back to how wh why it's important that police live in the areas that they police. Um, most don't, and most don't therefore represent the demographics to which they police, which plays a huge factor in whether or not community policing would ever be effective, which I don't personally think it can right now. Um, community policing, by the way, I've referenced that a million times. Community policing is kind of what some police departments are trying to shift to now which is a total rewrite of things in the past where i mentioned broken window policing where you write up petty crime so you have the aesthetic of no crime basically and the thought process being that therefore crimes won't happen if it looks like aesthetically you're not doing crimes anyway community policing is the idea of putting more police in the community itself out of the cars walking beats living in the areas that they police, having demographics that more closely reflect the demographics of the areas. So you would know the people, know the community and understand it better and be able to intervene in ways that don't resort to violence. And a huge example of that right now is actually Camden, New Jersey, which is crazy to me. So Camden, New Jersey has kind of become famous in the midst of our current kind of wave of protests because they switched to community policing model wiped out their police force, started from scratch, introduced a lot of nonviolent means of intervention, and their um, violent crime rate dropped, I think, like 43% or something. And that's wild to me. And I bet they did it for capitalist reasons, because I know they're trying to make Camden a shore town. And they're they tore down the Camden prison, for instance, to put like luxury housing there. So I have a feeling it was a decision made for greed rather than good, but whatever, it still happened at the end of the day. But that's crazy to me because Camden had, had a notoriously violent police force to, to the point where I actually think Matt didn't apply to Camden. I think he applied to most of their counties, but Camden County. So that's interesting to me. But they're a police um, force that literally tore everything up and replaced it with a community policing model. And so far it seems to be working out good. Where was I? Oh yeah. So this all goes back to this whole idea of, uh, for instance, where I grew up in New Jersey, it's not like police were patrolling the streets and blah, blah. Like you saw police on highways and they pulled you over for speeding things, but it's not like walking the streets of my shore town. I saw cops walking in my development and like patrolling and writing up for petty crime, blah, blah. There are still people doing crimes in my town. It's just there weren't enough cops to catch it. It's kind of like, the best, I don't know, it's, it's exactly that, is that black communities are more heavily policed. Just point blank. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. They just are. And that that's the problem, is that 
we have narratives like black on black crime, blah, 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 usually dismissive of like why there's a systematic racism problem in our, in our society. But it comes down to the fact that I think black Americans only make up about 13% of the population, but they're so overrepresented in our, in our uh, prison systems and just with crime in general, that is sickening. And it should be alarming to people. And it's not because black people are more violent and blah, blah, blah. It's because the system is designed to target those demographics of people, keep them in poverty, keep them in the criminal justice system, have it have generational effects, have it be profitable, which goes into the prison system and how the prison system is currently just modern slavery. Read the new Jim Crow if you want to know more information about that. And it's very much designed to be that way on purpose. That's why, again, there can't be a good cop because no matter what, you're maintaining those systems, whether your intentions are good or not, at the end of the day, you're still maintaining those systems. I, I know that a lot of people who watch us probably agree with us in general. Mm-hmm. Because that's what happens. Like, you watch things with people. You, like, people, yeah. people don't often, like, seek out media that they hate. They're like, I hate this one. I'm going to watch it anyway. But yeah. I hope... <laughs> I hope that if you were someone who like watched us or, or, or like someone sent this to you or something and you're like, well, I'm like an all lives matter person or like, you know, blue lives matter, whatever. Like, I really hope that you just do the like time, like take the time to like research th- these issues more thoroughly because I haven't even scratched the surface. I know. Like, that's what I'm saying. That's what, no, going off of what you said, there's these people that are just spoon-fed, you know, shit off Facebook and they think they deeply understand these issues. I don't even fully understand these issues. And I was immersed in it for years and it's my passion. It's what I, you know, love to research in this life. It's where I think I'm supposed to be doing on this earth is challenging this. And I I don't even fully get it. So, of, co- I, of course, like a basic person who, you know, they have like they have a a family member who's a police officer, they, you know, they can't understand why there can't be good cops and blah, blah, blah. Like, you can't understand why black lives have to matter right now. Like, oh, just Google it for five seconds. Like, seriously, do surface level research for five seconds. Listen to the people who not only, like, are me who studied it, fuck people like me. Listen to the people who have experienced it, who have experienced inequality at the hands of our criminal justice system, who have lived it. I will never understand as a white woman who went to college what it actually means to be affected by these things. That's the fucked up part about my privilege is I have the privilege of learning about inequality. I don't have, I'm not experiencing it firsthand. So I don't know. I wish people would just take five fucking seconds to research it, but or to listen, to listen to black people, but I want to give some tough love for a moment too, because Mm -hmm. I, every so often in my Instagram stories, I like have a little box where people can like write little comments or questions. Oh, so I know Jasmine said, um, our prison's obsolete, which is a fantastic book. And I would recommend that as well. Side note. That's another great, great book for this subject. If you're interested. Uh, back to what I was saying. (laughs) Yes. Sorry. Um, um, a tough love moment. Uh, I, um, on Instagram, they have a thing where you can like put out your stories and people can leave you comments and stuff. And this was after the riots were starting and someone left a comment saying, I feel guilty because I'm white. And I'm here to say that your guilt means like nothing. Like 
it doesn't matter. No one really cares. It's not productive. And if you do feel guilty, maybe that's a sign that you should do something. And I would encourage you to do something and not, no one is saying like, you have to go out and get like a PhD or like, you know, become like, you don't need to like change your entire life over it. But I think that the things that you can do in your life that you can do, you, you should do like, um, if there's any charities that you can donate to, if you have any disposable income at the moment, please donate to them because it's going to make a huge difference up, you know, coming in the future. Even if you know people in your life where I, like, I don't always like, I think sometimes people think that I like debating. I don't, it's like fucking waste of time. Like I make this rule for myself. Like I'm not going to debate people on Twitter. Cause like there's yeah, no fucking it's point. It's a waste of time. But the one thing that I will do in my personal life is if I'm ever around people and they say something fucked up, I try my best Call to, co- it out. to correct them on yeah. it. And that's that's what you can do. If you're someone who's listening and you don't have, like, you're, you're not a social media person, you don't have a platform, you're not a politician or whatever, like, that's the change yeah. that you can do in your life is... Chal- challenge everyday racism. Challenge uh, microaggressions. Challenge your own prejudices. Something that fucked with me when I took my race, ethnicity, and diversity class is that it forced me to challenge the ways in my life that I had I had prejudices. Everyone has prejudices. It's not you don't have to beat yourself up for it, but you can correct it. Yes. It's, and it's something that 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 professor gave to me is she said it's not your initial thought that counts; it's your corrected thought that matters. So if you if you catch yourself thinking something fucked up, thinking something prejudiced, thinking something racist, be like, whoa, where is that? Where did that come from? And correct it and actively work on correcting that. Work on normalizing diversity in our society. That I think that's why in the in the makeup community, there's all there's all of these campaigns to promote black-owned makeup brands and promote black makeup artists, black photographers, because that's a facet of the criminal justice system, whether you think it is or not, in a sense that it normalizes racism in the criminal justice system by normalizing racism everywhere. Kind of like how I was talking about cops. If we can ignore the fact that we that white is normal and white is the main thing that we see everywhere, if we can challenge that, we can challenge racism and in these everyday facets, it trickles into challenging racism in our structures in America and our political structures and our criminal justice structures and our presidential candidates. It, it challenges us. And that's something that I have seen with these protests is it is a diverse crowd of people in these protests, which makes me so happy that it seems like more and more people are kind of understanding that this is, I think you referenced in another podcast, class solidarity, that we're all kind of recognizing that this is a class solidarity issue. And I think just challenge yourself to be a better ally in every aspect of your life. If you have no money to give, if you feel like you've signed every petition, but you don't know what else to do, normalize diversity, normalize listening to people, normalize recognizing racism in all facets of your life. It doesn't have to be as extreme as the criminal justice system, but it could be as simple as makeup, which is what we mostly talk about sometimes. It could be anything. And I think that's just so fucking important to just challenge it everywhere. Challenge it every time you see it. Challenge it in your workplace. When you come, when, when your kids learn something racist and fucked up in school, challenge it. Like talk to your kids like that. That's like, ah, it's everywhere. Just, (laughs) I could keep going. Oh my God. Clearly I I could keep going. I think it should be 
I, I don't know. I don't mean. I don't know how to say this. Other than I think it should be like your duty as an American to yeah. care care about other Americans. And there are populations of Americans right now that are disproportionately being affected by police, and they're being murdered. They're being murdered. It's not even about injustice anymore. It's about murder. It's about life and death. It's about systemically allowing murder and generational fucking inequality to just continue. There are demographics of Americans in this country that are disproportionately being denied their rights as Americans and their freedoms and being forced into poverty, into uh, prison slavery, into death. Like, that should piss you off. If you're a human being with empathy, that should piss you off. Truly. I'm so, I'm sorry. If you're an all lives matter kind of person, you really need to think about why your gut reaction to hearing black lives matter is to correct it to all lives matter. What is it about that? That makes you uncomfortable truly. And is it something prejudiced that you maybe need to think about? Is it all of these lies that you're just not ready to challenge because it would disrupt how you view your place in society. And it would challenge how the ways that you help to upkeep this power imbalance I think that's a lot of people's problem is people don't want to acknowledge the ways that they on a minute microscopic level help uphold these systems. I, I think we all need to look at that. I, I think we should revisit this in the future and maybe talk more about prisons. Oh my God. Yeah. I didn't even t- scratch that surface. <laughs> uh, I don't know what to say right now. I don't either. I just, my my closing thoughts. (laughs) Clearly I'm very passionate about this. You should be though. Because people are people. Like people are fucking people. The fact that anyone in this world has a different experience as an American based on things about them that they can't even change. This It's so fucked up to me. And it's not just race it's everything it's it's sex it's gender it's class it's you know it's everything it's always upset me this is why i am the way that i am and it's just fucked up and i think now more than ever i'm hopeful that things could change i think in the past i've been very pessimistic about change but it feels like something's happening don't let it die like keep demanding change if you're in a position where you can protest keep protesting if you're in a position to donate keep donating keep trying to educate the people in your life who are willing to be educated i know some people just aren't fuck those people i say make racists afraid to be racist but hey maybe that's controversial but i don't think it should be i think we should all be allowed to punch nazis but anyway uh, (laughs) i will say i love what social media has been doing with shaming racists into disappearing out of society because fuck those people that I think that's what we should be doing. We should be demanding change. We should be correcting every day in injustices. Injustices is the word. I'm getting tongue-tied because I've been screaming for an hour and ten minutes. <laughs> uh, it's just, And it's not an easy road, I should say. It's not something that's going to be fixed by having a couple cities here or there being like, we've listened, we're going to defund the police. It's not something that's going to be fixed when certain police officers are brought to justice for slaughtering women when they're just sleeping in their beds. It's not something that's going to change just when those things happen. It's a situation where we have to keep applying pressure 
And right now we're applying that pressure and I just beg everybody not to stop. Like, please, as we ease into our lives, as COVID restrictions kind of lift and everything kind of feels like it's going back to normal, don't let this stop. Like, truthfully, like, know that Black lives matter now. Black lives have always mattered. They matter in the future. Black youth matters. Black LGBTQ life matters. Black female lives matter. Black lives matter. Black able bodies matter. Black disabled bodies matter. Like, all black lives matter now, in the past, in the future. Like, hold that even when we go back to our normal lives, when you don't see protests being put on TV anymore. Just know that we have to keep going. Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter. I will say it every fucking day, Black Lives Matter. I also want to say that Georgia also says that Black Lives Matter, but Georgia just always forgets to change her little name tag <laughs> whenever we do this. So that's why it just says Georgia. <laughs> just so we're <laughs> just so we're clear. Oh, huh. They seem like always on top of like making her name tag topical and I'm just like Georgia. <laughs> I'll say I think I got more on topic because whenever Nisa's is on the podcast, she always has funny things to make True. her name. So I try to live up to that, but this isn't a funny thing to me. This is serious. Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter. I'd like to extend uh, an offer to anyone who's listening to this podcast right now and you have experience with any of the things that we've been talking about and you feel comfortable coming on. Uh, mm -hmm. If you want to shoot us an email at halfcousins at half cousins, half cousins podcast at gmail.com. Um, there's also like, if you go to like the YouTube channel, there's like a thing where it's like contact info and it'll give you an email. Um, mm -hmm. If you feel like coming on and, and you like you, like you'd want to share your experiences or like criminal justice, anything like that, uh, shoot us an email. I'd like to, I, we'd probably both like to hear from you. Mm -hmm. um, I'd like to do an episode talking about the prison system in the future. Mm -hmm. But that I might have to do more research on because I do know the basics, but it wasn't my expertise. My thing was kind of police culture. So I would have to do maybe just a refreshing on that subject, but we can absolutely do that subject. But until I then, I, I was going to say, I also, I visited a jail as part of my education, which was very interesting. I could talk about that too. But anyway, until then, uh, Keep applying pressure until then, and I was gonna keep going. <laughs> oh man! If you wanna, we have a Twitter, so you can always tweet stuff at us. Tweet stuff at us like links or like you know spam stuff at us on Twitter at Half Cousins on Twitter. We have an Instagram um, at Half Cousins Podcast. And if you like these podcasts and you want to support us and you want to see uh, episodes early and you want to see exclusive content, you can check us out on Patreon. Lacey, are you gonna have a good night? I think so. I'm going to have a white claw after this. <laughs> oh. We will Play see some you Animal Crossing and decompress. We will see you guys later. Bye.